Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning on this 1st of June 2021. Before we take a little breakfast browse around the headlines of the day, let me ask you, where in the Word are you this morning? I am in Mark chapter 2, revisiting the miraculous healing of the paralytic, the friends who bring the man to Jesus. They can't get anywhere close to where Jesus is, but you know what? They're going to find a way, so they unroof the roof. Um, I don't know, how how far would you go? To what lengths would you go to get your friend in front of Jesus? Like, that's what people need. People need for us to do everything possible to get them in front of Jesus. And then Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do, and, and that which only Jesus can do for us. And so, you know, the friends obviously wanted the man healed of his physical infirmity, but Jesus wanted to deal with the deeper need. That's true of each of us and all of us. We tend to judge the outward appearance. God is always judging the heart. So everybody's deepest need, mine and yours and everyone else, the deepest need is the need within, the sin need, the real brokenness, the real paralysis, the real um, heart issue and head issue and life issue and death issue, the eternal issue. And so uh, the Pharisees are overhearing all of this. There's obviously a crowd of people around pressing in, and Jesus forgives the man of his sins. And of course, the Pharisees are pulling their hair out about it. And he says, look, what's, what's harder? Like, what's more difficult to say your sins are forgiven or to say, pick up your bed and, and walk? And the truth of the matter is they're both impossible. They're both impossible. I mean, one might be easier to say, might be easier to say your sins are forgiven, but it's impossible to do it. And it's impossible to tell a person who's been paralyzed to to simply stand up. But God, right? It's impossible, but God. And so Jesus is demonstrating that he does have the power and the authority to forgive sins by also demonstrating that he has the power and the authority over the created order to put broken or paralyzed things back into the right working order. And so I just lift up Mark chapter 2 to you today, encourage you to um, present yourself before the Lord, allow him to deal at the depth of our real need, which is the sin need, and then yes, yes, for him to then also deal with everything else. Um, It's all impossible but for God. And with God, all things are possible. All right, a few uh, quick headlines. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been Prime Minister for some 12 years. That may soon be coming to an end. There is a very ideologically diverse but anti-Netanyahu coalition that appears to be uh, moving toward a power-sharing agreement in Israel. So we will see how that plays out. 
Um, and a, a major shift in China and Chinese law in 1979, China instituted a one child policy and then it instituted a two child policy uh, after realizing, oh, my goodness, uh, with a one child policy, we are going to be in such a, uh, a population spiral that we will not be able to recover as a culture. Well, come to find out, once you have convinced people to have one child, it's very, very difficult then to actually convince them that having two children or more children is a good thing. And, you know, so the Communist Party doesn't really value life. It just values and it doesn't value people as people, as individuals, as particulars. It it, it values them as cogs in the state um, system. And so the Communist Party has announced that it is replacing the two child policy for married couples with a three child policy because the census has revealed the country's slowest population growth in a number of decades. Well, that's because the people who were born and raised as individual children, one child in a one-child family, every family since 1979, uh, short of those who have been defying the one-child policy, uh, those people think that that's actually, they, they have the presupposition that one child is the right number of children, and so they're only going to have one child. You see how this works. All right, we're going to talk about presuppositions and the why, the ways in which we think and why we think what we think at the top of the next hour. But right now, we're going to turn our attention to a conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. We'll be right back. Caleb Smith joins me again today from Cedarville University. Welcome back, sir. Hey, Carmen. How are you doing today? I am. I am well. I am well. Um, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, and so as soon as we say that, we are, uh, you know, that we could spend a whole day or more talking about who does that mean and what does that mean. Um, but I'm reading an article here related to the the difficulty in categorizing people maybe we used to assume that if you were this way religiously, you were this way politically, or if you were this way in relationship to science, you were this way politically. Um, Those, uh, those are moving targets. Uh, Yeah, they are moving targets. No question about it. Um, I think a lot of us have what we call recency bias, where we think the world has always been like it is right now uh, from our perspective. Uh, But things have changed pretty radically from what we can tell. Uh, certainly in American history during the last 50 to 100 years, and how people relate to religion uh, and politics and science is certainly part of that transformation. Um, The recency bias, the way things are, is the way things that they have always been or the way that maybe they should be. Um, Talk with us about that a little bit, because I think when um, we're so wrong about so many things, if we're just operating out of the way things are right now, or if we imagine that the way things are right now are either totally good or totally bad, like there's a problem there. Yeah, there's a big problem there. And I think uh, a lot of people really struggle uh, with developing some kind of historical sense of reality. Uh, Cause I honestly think if you understand history and that's challenging in and of itself, history is complicated and difficult to get your fingers around sometimes Uh, But if you understand history, I think you have a much better sense of where 
you are and where society is uh, in the present day. <clears throat> but history is, uh, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to compete uh, with history sometimes when you look at the YouTube generation or the social media generation that exists on a very different way of learning. Uh, it's one of the challenges that we face. But, you know, I have a good friend who teaches history. He says that uh, uh, basically we're trying to construct for people um, a house, and this house is made out of their historical sense and understanding. And you want to continue to put furniture in that house and to furnish it and to, and to make it bigger and more elaborate and more ornate so they get a better sense of the past and a better sense of reality. Uh, but so many people come to us at, at any university uh, or even in society and have very little sense of what that history looks like. Uh, you know, what you were talking about, about religion and science and politics, uh, that's really different uh, now than it was in my parents' generation, certainly my grandparents' generation. Party labels have switched. Our understanding of reality has switched. We've become much more polarized, I think, in many ways. And uh, yeah, reality changes all the time. I think it's important to realize that, especially if you have any hope of, of shifting it for the future. I'm wondering how many people listening, um, you know, when they were going through school, ever studied what happened in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the race massacre that took place there. I guarantee you that was not a part of my early uh, American history education. I know it now. Um, talk with us about you know, the, maybe the statement that history is written by the victors, um, yeah. but the reality now that we actually do know a whole lot more about what happened in times and places and the humility that is required to allow ourselves to acknowledge and recognize that things happened in the past that we did not learn when we were kids, but those things are true uh, nonetheless. Well, I think f for many of us, we tend to look at our history uh, as a way to verify what we currently think. And so if you know, you're know you deeply committed to a political party or if you're deeply committed to a particular view of American history or America as a nation, for example, uh, then you're going to look at history from that specific point of view. And so if you're a fierce Republican or a fierce Democrat, then history is going to probably uh, exonerate your tribe uh, and it's going to be sort of shaped around that around that point of view. And so much of what we learn in history, too, I, I think especially uh, before we had truly a, more of a national media landscape, uh, so much of what we learned in history was regional. Uh, much of it was really dependent on what time you took history courses. Um, I, you know, I don't think I'm that old, but I've had friends and colleagues who said they were taught uh, what I can really only describe as pretty racist views of history uh, when they were children. And we're constantly trying to learn uh, about our past so that we have a better sense of injustices that occurred then and hopefully give us a sense, too, of how our brothers and sisters see reality right now. Um, but, yeah, I, history is a tremendous tool for us to use, I think, as we interact with people who are different from us. Um, but you got to put your time into it and you got to devote yourself to learning history. It doesn't just simply uh, come into your brain. All right, um, Mark, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, let's talk about what is shaping beliefs in QAnon, which is actually continuing to lead the headlines, particularly among evangelical Christians across the United States. I'm talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, and we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, 
Mark, let's talk about QAnon. Still people who don't uh, know what it is or, or or you have even any concern about it. Others who are total uh, devotees of it, and it is absolutely influencing their uh their interactions at church or even their ongoing participation in religious communities. Talk with us about what's going on in terms of QAnon, conspiracy theories, um, and American politics and American religion. Yeah, I mean, QAnon is uh, is not going away. Um, I think for many of us, we thought that it might dissipate once President Trump was no longer uh, in office, but that doesn't seem to be the case at all. And And for those who aren't aware um, QAnon is really a, a fairly elaborate conspiracy theory that is rooted in particular social media platforms uh, where particular posters began making these very kind of far outlandish predictions about what was going to happen. And they kept posting warnings about things that were going to take place. Um, and some core beliefs include this understanding that elites in society economic elites, political elites, entertainment elites uh, are really part of a Satan-worshipping cult um, that is also pedophilic in its tendencies. And so, um, and there are other beliefs. There's this belief that a storm is coming that's going to bring about some sort of justice, a dramatic event that's going to bring about justice in American society, uh, and a belief that really patriotic and responsible Americans are getting to the point where they should consider taking up arms uh, and and engaging in violence to bring America and put it put it back on the right track. Um, what we can see now academically, QAnon isn't going anywhere, um, and it still has pretty big uh, roots in our in our culture. Uh, and those roots, of course, vary based on how much, uh, what kind of media you consume. Uh, it's more uh, more active within the Republican Party than within the Democratic Party. Uh, it's also rooted in education and other factors. Uh, but as you said, I think it's splintering families. Uh, it's splintering churches, and I think even some pastors are really hesitant to even touch it because of how uh, politically explosive it can be. It's um, yeah, it's become uh, a real ideology of a particular group of people, and it becomes very difficult to talk with them. In my own experience, it becomes very difficult to talk with them, um, with what I would describe as rationality, because they perceive any criticism of their position as evidence that you are then a part of the conspiracy against the truth, against what they perceive to be reality. And they have these very um, reinforcing online communities that have, for many of them, utterly replaced the church. I mean, completely and utterly replaced the church. Yeah, that's right. And, and many of these communities uh, really are rooted in social media. Um, people who don't even recognize the term QAnon um, often spread conspiracies related to it through Facebook and through Twitter uh, without using the labels themselves. And I think for many people, it is it is really all-consuming and all-encompassing in ways that's just uh, it's striking, I think, and it's remarkable. And I don't really know what this looks like moving forward, Carmen. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we've ever seen a kind of conspiracy take root through social media because social media is so new in our culture. Um, I just don't know what this looks like moving forward. I mean, conspiracy theories have always been with us, uh, and they're never going to go away because of how attractive they are. Uh, but this this feels different in some ways. Um, but you know, all I can say is uh, it, it, I think it's clearly in contrast to Christianity. 
it's clearly in contrast to our faith and how we're called to live as people of truth and how we're called to, to put on the belt of truth uh, when we enter into spiritual war. QAnon and other kinds of conspiracy theories, I think, stand in opposition to that. And as believers, we have to understand that and move forward from that perspective. So one of the interesting connections, Mark, that um, I had someone make to me was uh, they actually believe that what they understand to be this overarching conspiracy theory, which let me just say uh, here, if you're listening right now and you want to understand sort of the component parts of the QAnon movement, uh, PRRI, which is the Public uh, Religion Research Institute, um, has done a, a a kind of a wrap-up study on it. Here's here's one outcome. 15% of Americans, 15% of Americans agree with this allegation, quote, the government, media, and financial worlds in the United States are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. Okay, so 15% of Americans agree with that sweeping allegation. So that's when when I say QAnon, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who believe, who who are a part of this 15 percent. There's other strings and threads uh, related to this, but that's that's the group that I'm talking about. Um, and so they 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 believe that that is going on, and that that is the uh, massive conspiracy against which then all those who are people of goodness and truth need to um, need to stand up and confront. I actually heard somebody over the weekend. Um, quote Francis Schaeffer from How Should We Then Live um, in support of their belief that there is this elite uh, group. So when we say that there's no substance for this, that there's nobody upon whom, you know, people are building their uh, their own sense of support for their positions, um, they are finding quotes out there from um, you know, from people who would be recognizable as legit, uh, you know, Christian scholars and apologists. And they're they're taking, you know, a line here and a line there. And they're saying, oh, this is what Schaefer was actually talking about when um, when when Schaefer was talking about, you know, the elite that, you know, filling the vacuum for a loss of Christian consensus. This is who he was talking about. So I'm just saying that it is amazing to me how far folks will go. That That is certainly not what Francis Schaeffer was talking about, if you read the corpus of, of his work. No, not at all. And uh, it, it's, you know, the old saying is, uh, to the hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm. And to someone who believes in a conspiracy theory, then everything else is sort of main, is sort of perceived through that theory. And you just collect random bits of information, supposedly in support of that theory, because in essence, it's become your worldview. Um, and I think if we're honest about it, if it gets to that point for a believer, then it's idolatrous. You know, you are really substituting uh, universal truth uh, with something else entirely. And if it's driving your behavior, uh, then I just don't know how we can reconcile that uh, with faith. Uh, but I think the reason pastors are so hesitant to deal with this and talk about it from the pulpit is because of, the, of, of what happens within their churches when they do. Um, you know, the last year and a half has shown us that these things are so politicized uh, that when the church tries to address them, then it creates fractures within the church itself. And uh, pastors are in a very vulnerable position right now, uh, not just when it comes to QAnon, but when it comes to science, when it comes to COVID and vaccines uh, and partisanship. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think of the church as being apart from these things, 
but the church is really uh, rolled up right within them, and we're going to have to figure out a way to move forward. I'm going to take a deep breath, and I am going to um, I'm going to encourage everybody to pause and think about your presuppositions today, um, and. Because I think that, Mark, that's what this ultimately comes down to, right? I mean, I have to think about what what I think about things, and then I have to think about why I think about things that way, and then I think of, I have to think about how I am then applying those beliefs in terms of the values that work themselves out in my actions. But most yeah, people I are think... not stopping to think about anything that long. No, that's exactly right. Um, and I think you have to start with those very basic fundamental questions and I think even when we think of people within our families, within, within our friend networks, we have to approach it the same way um, in love, uh, but also with truth, but really starting those very core issues. But with the full understanding that when people are in the grip of such a thing, uh, it may take a long time. It could even take years uh, to really eventually pull people back uh, from the edge of this. All right. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith at Cedarville University. Uh, and we just love catching up on all kinds of things. This is a big month coming up for the Supreme Court. And I am betting that you're going to be paying attention to those things as well. <laughs> That's the truth. Thanks as always, Carmen. I appreciate it. Absolutely. absolutely. We'll be right back. What in the world is going on in the world? We are going to take a little global trot with World Magazine's global news editor, Mindy Bells. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Do you have a comfortable prodigal living in your home? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I find it interesting that the prodigal son in the Bible came to his senses only when the consequences of his rotten attitude left him eating with swine far away from his mother's home cooking. But today, many teens are living a prodigal lifestyle while still enjoying the comforts of home. They get what they want and they do as they please, all at mom and dad's expense. And as a result, they never grow up. Mom, dad. It's okay to give your teen what he truly needs, but don't let your generosity facilitate his laziness. Instead, take some risk and give your teen some personal responsibility. One day, he'll be fully prepared to live on his own. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Magazine. She is their global editor. Uh, Mindy, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Tell us uh, what's going on in the Tigray region uh, in Ethiopia. Oh, yeah, really important that we pay more attention there. I'm hearing increasingly, I was in two briefings where U.S. officials spoke right before the holiday weekend, and everyone brought up the Tigray region. There's real concern of genocide there. Um, and we're getting reports. I believe you and I talked about this months ago. And mm -hmm. if, if you remember, there was there was a massacre that was centered on a church in Axum where 800 people mm -hmm. were killed. We had confirmation that that had happened. Keep in mind, this is a region of northern Ethiopia. 
um, that's been embattled since uh, November of last year. So we're six months into this and everyone thought that the conflict happened and, and, and kind of people moved on from it, but in fact, it hasn't stopped. And so the latest is just really incredible, hard to take in reports of just mass rape abuse and and we believe killings that are that are continuing to take place most of them uh at the hands of of Eritrean forces who entered the region with the permission of the Ethiopian government so it's it's a real mess of a war that began um a small conflict that began uh with what appears to have been an Ethiopian government that used Eritrean forces to um to, I'd say settle a, a vendetta with um, their political opposition, and instead it has devolved into something much, much, much worse. It's hard for us um, to even fathom or imagine, you know, how a government would turn its own people and use a foreign power um, to do so. But then the devolution, uh, you know, imagining that you could control such a thing um, is. Uh, is yeah, it's, it's just so futile. It's just hard to even imagine what's happening there. Um, I, as we read reports out of the Tigray region, it is it's devastating um, to to hear the stories that are being told by people who have survived. Um, but we're talking about uh, families who already displaced by the violence, um, who are now being subject to unspeakable um, treatment by the people who are supposed to be protecting them in those displacement camps. So uh, we need That's to be right. praying and we need to be acting as we can. Hey, Mindy, I'm curious to know what else came up in those briefings that you were sitting in on from U.S. officials prior to the holiday weekend? Like what what are they talking about? Because maybe that will help us know where we should all be paying attention around the world. Well, they're talking about the things that we are seeing in the headlines, like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Um there's some significant challenges with that, um, like the situation with China, just ongoing sort of building of belligerence there. But what I want to emphasize is that that this issue came up, you know, the, the U.S. envoy to the Horn of Africa, and, and this was in a speech that he gave while he was traveling the region last week. Um, he said that this conflict in Ethiopia could make the Syrian war look like child's play. And the reason for that, and this is this is you know something we as Americans just are not good at paying attention to what's happening in Africa. Syria is a country of 23 million. Ethiopia is the most populous country in Eastern Africa. It has 110 million people. And what we're the reason that we're I, that I'm paying attention that people are calling this genocide is because this is devolving into the uh, one one ethnic group. Um, killing another and mm -hmm. seemingly wanting to wipe them out. And so we could be looking at a situation that, you know, our U.S. forces are based in the Horn of Africa. Um, it's it's a strategic area with many U.S. allies. And, and just simply because of the number of people we're talking about, we could be talking about just a, a humanitarian disaster. I think the other issue, and this touches on some other things that are happening in the world, is, is just where we all are with COVID and the fact that um, – You've had lockdowns that have allowed bad things to happen behind closed doors. And um, this region in Ethiopia was completely shut 
off from journalists. And I, I think that we're going to see this be a problem moving forward, even into this year, as many of us feel like we're coming out of COVID, out of the pandemic. It's simply not the case in the rest of the world. And I just think that bad actors are going to take advantage of that and are going to do things because they can get away with them. Uh, no doubt. Um, let's talk about the Afghanistan situation, because I know that you have written about that. Um, how does the U.S. and maybe even the the other withdrawals from Afghanistan, I know that Australia has or is closing their embassy there. Um, so how does the withdrawal from Af- Afghanistan put Christians there at really increased risk? Yeah, it's been a tough subject to report on. Um, the, the Afghan church is basically an underground church, a house church. Uh, Christianity is technically allowed by the Constitution that we helped to rewrite during the early years of the war, um, but it is not in practice. Uh, Recognize there are no existing churches in Afghanistan officially recognized outside of a a Catholic church at the compound of the Italian embassy in Kabul, the capital. I mean, that's how difficult it is. And so, but in spite of that, the remarkable thing is that Christianity has flourished in Afghanistan. And especially, ironically, um, during the years of war, that the presence of American and Native forces has simply allowed a level of security for them to operate underground. And um, many of them, and, and I spoke to several of them, of the leaders, uh, believe that that's going to end uh, once once U.S. forces, Native forces are out. And what people believe will happen, which is the Taliban will either come in and take over or will have a significant role in the government moving forward. <sighs> Which the investment that we have made there, um, not just in terms of financial investments, but the investments of real time and real lives, um, you know, I, I just think that there has to be a better way. I'm not saying that I know what it is, but there has to be a better way than just dropping dropping it all and, uh, you know, packing up and going home. Absolutely. And I think that we... One place that we can start a conversation is by saying this is a bipartisan failure. And and I think, mm-hmm. you know, having been in Afghanistan during some of the worst years of the war, having witnessed, many of us have known people who were killed in the war there, um, have had loved ones who served there. Here we are a day after Memorial Day. And we're talking about basically just, just writing off those losses and allowing the country to go back to the situation that it was in. Uh, prior to the U.S. invasion in 2001. And I I, I simply think that our our political leaders have not framed this in the proper way and have not taken the brave step because, yes, we're all wary of war. Yes, we don't want to see U.S. forces committed uh, indefinitely. However, it's it's historic and well-established that a U.S. follow-on force the kind of force that we've had there over the last couple of years, it has, A, taken no casualties, no combat casualties, and, and B, it has been significantly helpful in terms of um, 
of bolstering the Afghan forces, making sure that they're on solid footing to continue. And, and that's a year long, pro years long project. That's not something that you just pull out of and end. And that's what we're talking about doing is just simply ending it. Um, we have precedent for what happened in Iraq. When we did that in Iraq, we saw the invasion of ISIS and this whole um, uh, explosion of terrorism that we hadn't seen before. People are, I think, just saying that won't happen in Afghanistan, but on what basis, no one knows. Um, and I would just say, I mean, one thing that's that's in some ways hopeful in this situation is that Afghanistan is not this, the Afghan people are not the same people uh, at the time of the, the U.S. invasion, the last time that the Taliban ruled. I mean, quite literally, um, most Afghans are, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but most Afghans are young enough that they don't even remember a time that um, when the Taliban government, Taliban was the government in Afghanistan. And they also, they're more connected to the world. They're more educated. You have a phenomenal number of women who've been educated and who are serving in parliament now. They're simply not going back to this extremist, Muslim jihadist um, uh, mode of doing things where that we that some of us who are old enough can remember from the 1990s. They're just not going to allow that. So whether we see a season of civil war again, you know, like what we've seen in Syria, or whether we see some kind of accommodation that is reached because of, of I think, the strength of the Afghan people um, will will be what we're watching for. All right, we're talking with Mindy Bells from World Magazine, uh, and we will return to this conversation about what's going on around the world in just a moment. Hey, Mindy, um, since the last time we talked, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom issued its annual report. Um, one of the things that stood out to me and you highlighted um, in an article as well was the effect that, you know, pandemic closures have had on the church globally and then sort of the cascading effect that those um, that those closures have had in communities around the world. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And again, I, I feel like we're hampered by just how little we know, but we have gotten mm -hmm. some reports. USERF is one group that's been watchdogging this. Another one is the World Evangelical Alliance um, based in Europe. And um, they have done some good reports as well. We've seen a situation, I'll mention one in particular in Algeria, where the church is always under some stress. It's a majority Muslim country. And um, in Algeria, they, they had it shut down. They closed all houses of worship, but then they opened mosques and um, did not open churches. And, and then they began leaving those churches closed. And so that's an ongoing situation of, of just, use, again, using the pandemic to, um, to oppress Christians. Uh, and, and, you know, even, I will say, even in Western Europe, um, you know, I hear from a number of, of European uh, church leaders who Europe has faced just these it's really strenuous lockdowns. And we saw that they have had truly wave after wave of coronavirus, unlike the sort of two big waves that we've had in the United States. And um, 
and they too are saying that they feel that they've been discriminated against. In other words, it's not just simply that they're complaining about um, having to endure another lockdown. It's that, that when things begin to open up, churches are not allowed to open up. If the buildings open, then certain events are not allowed to take place. And so I, I think it just, again, it's just something that we in the church in America need to continue to be aware of. We've we've had a lot of this issue in our own country, and I feel like it has taken our eyes off the ball to the situation for groups that are already oppressed and already facing persecution and now are facing things that they can't even battle because of unfair lockdown rules. We have um, covered here on the show um, the the death during COVID pandemic of some really significant leaders, one in Syria and one in Israel. Um, but you have chronicled a list of key women in really hard places who have died uh, during the COVID pandemic and and you know, raise some concern about how that is going to affect humanitarian work around the world. Can you talk about that, Mindy? Well, one that I assume you're referring to is a is a is a doctor in uh, northern Iraq who has been someone I got to know years ago uh, during the time that ISIS occupied a lot of Iraq, and she began working with uh, Yazidi women in the north who had had been, you know, enslaved and, and just faced atrocities at the hands of ISIS. And she had begun this phenomenal work of helping to um, reunite them with children that were the the result of, of these forced marriages that they had had to endure with, with ISIS. And um, very difficult work, difficult from a cultural standpoint, um, many of these children are not welcomed in their communities because they are part Arab uh, and and have been, you know, products out of wedlock, out of the community. Um, very difficult work. And uh, Nimam Ghafouri is her name and, and just an incredibly brave woman who, um, in the course of doing the work that she's been doing, came down with uh, contracted COVID and became very sick. Um, and it was actually a team of American doctors traveling the region. And I think these are just things that we forget about that are happening, um, that you have these American aid groups that are incredibly intrepid and brave who are going into some of the hardest places in Syria, into some of the hardest situations in Iraq and other places. And so they were actually there in the region, were able to take care of her and get her oxygen and things like that. But it was simply too late. Um, the the virus had had taken off, and um, she was flown to Sweden for better care, and uh, died there. And so the problem is, you, you know, that we just see these particular gaps in areas where um, it's so hard for anyone to work there. When you have a doctor who's as intrepid as Dr. Gafuri was, um, she leaves an incredible gap, and. She did start an organization that is continuing, and some of the Americans have been back there even just in the last couple of weeks to try to help um, continue that work. But she was just a forceful personality. And I think it it highlights for us, any of us who have been touched by uh, deaths during the pandemic, realize that they leave just 
the remarkable void, you know, sometimes in the numbers and in the totality of the situation, it's easy to lose sight of that. Um, but, but there in particular, it just really highlights what we have lost in this pandemic that's cost, you know, more than half a million lives in the United States and many, many more around the world. I think the stories of those lost around the world um, are going to shock and surprise us um, on the other side of this. The num- I think the numbers are going to surprise us, and then I think the individual stories. And we look forward to the way you are going to tell us those stories and so many other stories. I just uh, We genuinely appreciate what you do every single day for World. And I want uh, folks to find Mindy at the website WNG, that's for World News Group, WNG. Dot O-R-G. Mindy Bells, B-E-L-Z, is who you are looking for. Mindy, as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. Good to talk to you. Good to talk with you. We'll be right back. All right, as we survey what is happening around the world in our own communities and in our own lives, let me encourage us to be people who pause Think about what we're thinking about, thinking about how we're thinking about what we're thinking about. Apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day, and then speak into the issues and concerns of our day with the truth of the gospel. Let's be people who approach the conversations of the day with light, um, with truth, with integrity, which is going to mean sometimes we need to take a long pause to consider what God's view of something might be before we wade into a conversation. I recognize that need um, in my own life. I'm betting that you recognize it, uh, at least in the lives of others around you, if you don't recognize it in your own life uh, as well. So let's give pause today. Let's give pause and allow God to reveal to us his viewpoint on things. Allow him to bring his word into our minds that we might then apply it to the concern being raised in a conversation. Maybe, uh, maybe we think about it this way. Let's be people who are uh, slow to speak, which I know on the radio is like this odd thing because, you know, I can't like leave a lot of silence, but there are times when I just want to allow us to sort of marinate in a thought or an idea or a consideration. So marinate for a few minutes um, and we will rejoin one another for another hour of Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.